Ahakoa he iti, he mapihi ponomu. Although it is small, it is made of green stone. Ete we know my hooky my anokiate ahika kumraya rakrakutine maua ko Justine Maritine kiaura tata katoa. Well, it's our first show of the month, and it's a big countdown to the Olympics. Only five more days to go. What's your favourite sport, Justine? Hmm, it's got to be diving. Oh, Why is that, Justine? Well, because you know they just look so sexy standing on that platform, ready to dive, and gymnastics. Oh, and I love ping pong. And as for me, well, I love watching those bodies hoof it down the track. Amsterdam, the Māori cultural advisor to the team, talks with Justine this week. They were trailblazers back in 1982 by performing the first Te Reo Māori song that reached the number one spot. Buster Walden and the Pātea Māori Club who performed at the recent Komatua Kapahaka at Te Papa. Hands up who remembers what happened October 15th last year. Chances are Tuhoi can tell you. That was the date police locked down Tuhoi community Ruatoki in what became known in the mainstream media as terror raids. Journalist and media studies lecturer Sue Abel monitored mainstream media coverage of the event in the first 24 hours. Now she grew up in Te Waimana, the valley next to Ruatoki, and one of the six distinct communities of Tuhoi. That was back in the 1950s. It seems her time there has defined her career path. And any interaction that there was, was big Māori girls yelling at us. I was just been really scared of them. <laughs> What are you? Has that changed, Sue? <laughs> <laughs> what are you story staring at, you Jack Noy? How long would you fight to have your proper name recognised? In the case of Whanganui, Whanganui, we're talking a long, long time. The bottom line is really at the end of the day is, is that uh, to give it meaning, and it has meaning with the H in it, without the H in it, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't come from anywhere. It has no meaning. Uh, certainly in Māori language, and certainly uh, in the English language. So why would anyone want to have a name of oneself of a, of a city when it's got no meaning? When mm. in fact, uh, as the name derives from from us as as the local iwi uh, river people, it has meaning and historical meaning that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Now to our series of 100 words you need to know in Te Reo Māori. We're counting down. And in this week's show, it's about nā kupu o te tinana. That's the words of the booty, the body. Karu is the eye. Yep. And if you wear glasses, you may be called four karu. Yep. That's four eyes. Taringa is the ear. I remember hearing the words, gee, I'm going to clip your taringa, girl. Or are those twack pointing to your ears painted on? As in, why ain't you listening? Upoko is head. Now in Te Māori, the head is very tapu or sacred. So if you leave, say, a hairbrush or a hat on the table, which is a place of kai, it's deemed very, very inappropriate. Ai tikara. Mati mati is for fingers. Ringa ringa is hands. Now how's this for clever? Ringa wera is a term used for cooks at the marae. Ringer is hands and wetter is hot. Hot hands, which really means, you know, it's used to describe busy hands of the cooks on the marae, or actually of cooks anywhere, eh? You can be called ringer wetter, because they work really, really hard. Gee, tō krewa hoki maraia. Wai wai is for legs. As in, the wai wai express means you are walking there. Nutu is Mwah. lips. Ihu is nose. Which, of course, is what you use when dinner's cooking and it smells so good. Pakahiwi is shoulders. Paparinga is the cheeks. Now, this is cheeks on your face. That is not cheeks uh, anywhere else. Makawe is hair on your head. And we need to point out that hair elsewhere is <laughs> huru huru. Yep, that's an important one. Now remember, Fano, sometimes kupu do vary depending on which iwi you are from. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Maraya Rakaraku, and this is Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. Māori Language Week ended last Sunday, and according to Te Tauta Whiri Te Reo Māori, it received unprecedented recognition. 
It sure did. The TV2 voiceover guy in New Zealand, Google Māori. And e Papakupu. We were at the launch last week. Mahiranga tira tēnei, e tai atu ngā kupu i runga te mihini rorohiko. E nui akano ngā kupu e rua te kau mā whā mano e tai atu i reire. Nā te pai hoki a tēnei, e mohi akano te nui o te rangatahi te mahi rorohiko. Ka tai atu ki tēnei wahi ngā wahi katoa Aotearoa, me ngā wahi o taua wahi. Nā te reka-reka i roti āku e kite akano ahakoa te kupu he kotahi pēr engari nui akano ngā whakarite mō te kupura. Tērā nō te pai. Engari e rōrō hoki te tai te wā e tai atu tātou e pēnei engari ko tai atu tātou. So ki o ake whakaro he he mea māma ki te whakamahi? O e māma hoki akano mō te rangatahi engari ngā me pakeke pēnei i a wau āhua tere haere o kuhā ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、
We had nothing to do with the Māori kids. So what, what, what time are we talking about here? This is the 1950s. Nobody ever said that you don't make friends with, with Māori kids, but we just didn't. It was just one of those unspoken things. Probably if we had, nobody would have said anything. I don't know. But it, my friends were all Pākehā. When somebody had a birthday party, it was all Pākehā. I went to school with kids who were the direct descendants of Prophet Rua, and I didn't know that until I went to university and started studying Māori society. When in Auckland I trained as a Citizens Advice Bureau worker, we went off to stay on a marae for the weekend, and we traipsed all the way down to Rua Tōki. I had never been there, and it was about five miles away from home. So I had to go to Auckland University to discover this whole world that was I'd lived in. That was virtually right at your fingertips that you yes, yes, never really yes. entered. And I remember, I mean, I was a bright student. I remember that at one stage we were asked what GMT meant, and I was the only one who knew it was Greenwich Mean Time. And then I thought, how relevant is this? <laughs> Afterwards, I thought, why was I not learning all these other things instead of learning about British things? So how was it? I mean, um, if we're talking the 1950s, we're talking about a time when teachers were still punishing Māori children for speaking te reo. So, like, in the playground, did the Māori kids naturally just go towards each other and the Pākehā children naturally, you know, move towards each other? Yes, very much so. And any interaction that there was was big Māori girls yelling at us. I always used to be really scared of them. <laughs> what are you... Has that changed, Sue? <laughs> <laughs> what are you staring at, you Jack Nohi? <laughs> Did so you the know balance of the pa- I mean, there was a balance of power that was not in Pākehā fa- uh, favour there. Yeah. And I do remember, my sister Kate reminds me, um, that I was horrified at one of the neighbours who had a Māori woman coming in to clean and she would just sit there smoking and reading a magazine, eating chocolate biscuits and while the while the Māori woman cleaned for her. And I thought that wasn't right. And I'm not sure whether I thought of it in the terms of class or of race, but that is an early memory of questioning. So it would be fair to say that when you went to Auckland University, that was the first time that... Uh, you became aware of Māori and things impacting upon Māori. Yes. Was there more mixing of Māori with Māori at university during that time? Nineteen sixties. Mm, not that I was aware of. Not that I was aware of. I had a very interrupted academic career. Mm. I didn't finish my BA for about another eighteen years, I think. Um, but I really got, it was just a vague uneasiness about things, about the way Māori was seen by Pākehā. And then when I had to choose an MA topic, I decided I would look at monoculturalism in the news media. And it was 1990, and it was the centennial. So I looked at the way Watchangi Day was covered. And from there, I wrote a book. Auckland University Press said that they would be interested in publishing a book about it. So and I, that's a book that was published in 1997? Yes. Shaping the News. Waitangi Day on television. And I updated it by looking at 94, 95. And as part of that, um, and my husband was a journalist with TVNZ. So I knew people didn't intentionally set out to be racist. Mm. And I spoke to a lot of journalists. I sat in in the newsroom at TVNZ. Um, I was particularly blessed because of Wasi Shortland and Ro Makiha from, um, at that time they were with Money News, spent a lot of time with me, pointing out things that I didn't notice. Um, so I have to say that I noticed lots of things that were... Well, you were getting an education, Monocultural eh? in the news. So I was getting education on the spot. But there were other things that other people pointed out to me. Carol Archie was... I actually devoted a whole chapter to Carol Archie and looked at her way of reporting and how she did things differently. And that, it was just an eye-opener for me. 
And since then, I have continued... I continued looking at the way mainstream media covers Māori. And then when Māori television started, I became interested in different ways that the two cultural groups might cover different things or tell different stories and tell different stories in different ways. So what I did at Victoria Uni last year was set up a course called Māori in the Media that you could do as part of a Māori studies degree or or a media studies degree. Um, I still call myself Pākehā. I have whakapapa back to Ngā Hine, but way back... See, I say but, very Pākehā about this, back in the 1830s, right? But at least twice this year, Māori people have said to me in different settings, Sue, why do you call yourself Pākehā? And I say, because I'm Pākehā. They say, no, 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 listen to us, you're Māori. But for me to say I'm Pākehā means it's a political stance. I've benefited from being in a dominant group. It's not an assertion of being in a dominant group. It's a, it's a recognition that I have everything I've got I have gained from being in a dominant group. But how did that recognition happen? I mean, lots of people get an education through some through Māori people in their lifetime, but they don't necessarily connect it all up and, and realise, you know, they don't necessarily do that. So... You know, there must have been something else going on with you, maybe. Uh, influential writers, Paul Spoonley's writing um, in particular, I think. There's a lot written about this now. If only people would go out and read it. Yes. Um, so now I teach about that. I teach about white privilege and Pākehā privilege. Hmm. And sometimes it takes a while for the Pākehā kids to actually cotton on. I get some resistance, but they they come to realise, yeah. Shaping the News, Television Waitangi Day. In in that book, you've you must you spent a long time watching TV because you catalogued uh, phrasing. What I did was I I totally transcribed the news items, and then from there, were you picking up a tone? And from there, it was just. A close, a close analysis of what was actually being said and what the, what the implications of that were. I mean, academically, you'd call that a discourse analysis, but at the time, I didn't know that was what it was. It was just for me like reading a poem. You know, you look for the, the choice of words and what the meaning for that is, and also the choice of images and why were these ones chosen and not that. And that was really interesting. So it was just what I was looking for was the unspoken assumptions, Mm, so, so from 1997 to 2007, and you've just written a paper, Tuhoi and Terrorism, on the television news. Did you see any differences in the way Waitangi Day was portrayed back in 1997 to the way the images of the terror in Ruatoki was portrayed? Yes. And yes. what were they? Um I just looked at the first day's coverage of the raid on, on Ruatoki. Um, TV1 and TV3 gave a much more balanced coverage than they would have ordinarily. And this really interests me. What, what I've argued is that if you look, one of the ways, when people are looking at balance in the media, or particularly in news, one of the things they do is they count up who is speaking, who is given a chance to speak, who are the sources used. And historically and internationally, it's been the case that um, Indigenous voices are seldom heard, that you will get more non-Indigenous people speaking on Indigenous stories than you will Indigenous people. Um, Yeah. And on TV1's coverage and on TV3's coverage, there were as many Māori voices as there was police. Well, they used the press conference with the police commission abroad. They, they would intercut that. You would have reporters on the field in Taniatua, um, or I'm not sure how far in they were allowed, actually, up into the Ruatoki. Um, but so their observations with local people, they'd have, you know, sound bites, sound bites from local people, and they'd be intercut with uh, the police commissioner. Mm. And the sound bites were really positive sound bites. 
like one woman, Vivian Hurier, she was quoted as saying, um, well, she wasn't, you saw her saying, anybody would think we were criminals. And I so liked that because it was so speaking back to that whole stereotype of Māori. I mean, to go back to Rick Allison's comment, comment, comment that we're fulfilling the charter because we're showing police 10-7. Mm. Yeah, okay. So she was speaking to that without realising it, and I thought it was really good. And another guy actually got the last voice in the item, and he said, look, we're builders, and we're meant to be building up the valley, and this is stopping us doing our good day's work. So, hey, Māori as criminals, Māori as unemployed? No, this wasn't the image you were getting. You were getting a really balanced coverage. TV3 even included a piece where somebody said, there's another side to Tamaiti, he's not just an activist. And they looked at his role as a community worker and as a painter and all that thing. You would not have had any of that 10 years ago. You just would not have had it. Now, is that kind of footage, though, is that reliant on having producers who have an analysis of things or, or what? I would argue that they didn't have an analysis of things. Right. Because I then went on to uh, compare the TV1, TV3 story with the Tekaya and Tekare story. Um, and they were very different. Right. How? Okay, so TV1 and TV3 talked about fear. I've called it two stories about fear. And Derek Fox, actually, in Mana magazine, says something about fear, and he's drawn out exactly the same two stories, but I didn't realise that till after I'd sort of looked at these. So let's call it mainstream media, for want of a better term. Mainstream media, Māori media. Mainstream... So what is mainstream media? Then? Oh, oh cripes. <laughs> mainstream media is... You could call it mass media. Basically, it assumes a white audience, the mass audience... Yeah. And you could go into things which says it's writing story for the for the white audience because that's where their advertising revenue is going to come from. But I don't think often it's even as consciously articulated as that. But I say mainstream with quotes around it because it suggests Māori media are not mainstream to say the other one's mainstream. So mainstream media, quotes, told a story about the fear of terrorism and they used a close-up of an armed defender squad member with a gun across his body, or it might have been her body, but no head. So the whole focus was on this black person, all clothed in black with big guns. Takarri used the same opening shot, and they had subtitles saying, fear arrives in Ruatoki today, or something like that. So it's as a fear, fear for, for Māori television was not the terrorist raids, it was the police raids. Mm, mm, mm. And it was a completely different story. Just It was just little things that made that clear. Māori television talked... Both channels made the point that one of the police blockades was on confiscation line. And the same woman, Vivian Hurea, who had had a soundbite on TV1, didn't, either she didn't talk about it to them or they didn't think it was relevant... But in Takarari, there she was saying, it's on confiscation line. <laughs> and um, both of them talked about, you know, the police have been here before. Tuhoi have had this trouble before. You know, it's just the same. Oh, here they come again. Whereas there was no historical context put into the mainstream media thing. So it was just two completely different stories. And not only that, but mainstream media only mentioned the state in terms of the possibility of an attempt on Helen Clark's life. And nobody even really took that seriously, but there was about 10 seconds of a shot of Helen Clark. Whereas, um, I can't remember, it was Tikari or Tikaya, Tikaya, explicitly talked about the state. You know, that when, when this bill was passed, we said that Māori would be the ones to suffer and look, it's passed. And they have been having secret meetings in the Beehive about this. So the worry is not the terror raid, but the secret meetings in the Beehive. Yeah. So it's a completely different point of view. And this really interests me because um, of the whole, the whole thing about balance. I mean, what I've argued is that TV1 and TV3 
Their stories would probably meet the Broadcasting Standards Authority's criteria of balance, but they don't reflect a Māori reality at all. And there's the, you know, there's that assumption that the media is objective. Hey, that that the fourth estate is an objective force. I found, and this was in 1990 when I was doing my research, that if you ask a journalist individually on the spot, can you be objective, and you separate that up from biased, unbiased, they will say, no, you can't be objective. You always bring your cultural baggage to Mm. it. Mm. Mm. So I don't know that objectivity is a term that's vaunted so much among journalist circles. It's certainly not among academic circles and among new scholarship. But um, when the BSA ran a symposium about balance in Auckland a couple of years ago, there was one panel about um, called Is Balance a Pākehā Concept? Um, And that was really interesting. The discussion said, in some ways, the question of balance is something that both Māori and Pākehā share in common. But Claudette Hoeti said, you know, at present, balance does not mean that a Māori reality is included. And the BSA also commissioned a research report into the portrayal of Māori and te ao Māori in broadcasting, and that was completed by my colleagues up at Victoria mm. in Te Kawa a Māori. Um, and they conclude that by saying at the end, okay, so they looked at the foreshore and seabed, and they said, well, actually all these items are fair and balanced according to the broadcasting standards. Standards. Well, I would disagree with them there, but still. Um, but what's, they still don't meet Māori criteria, and they don't meet Māori requirements. Um, and that was just there as an add-on at the end. And to me, I would have—I they were working under huge time constraints, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to me, that is the big question. Okay, having established all that, how can it be that some of that coverage was fair? And what does one do to create news that does reflect both worldviews? Is it possible to do that though? Ah, I don't know. I don't know. I remember seeing the wonderful Mariana Hond. Now, here's another interesting story about Waitangi. That in 1990... That was when Whakahuihui made that 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 wonderful speech. speech. And I used a bit of his quotes. You know, he said, the media that run this country uh, country are yours, etc., etc. But I knew that there was these big hui going on at Titi Marae for three days before the before Day. And so I was tuning into the media every day to find out what was going on. And there was nothing, nothing, nothing. And that continued for several years. Anything that happened down to Titi Marae was just not relevant to the mainstream news. And it became relevant when politicians started arriving. And both channels, TV1 and TV3, sent along their political reporters to cover it. So this is not about what are Māori saying, what's of concern to them. It's about what's of strategic value here for Pākehā politicians. Does this mean they're going to rise in the poll or sink in the poll? Is somebody going to throw some mud at Brash again and can I get a photo? Um, So again, it's a very monocultural way of looking at it. But in 2003, what happened is that Mariana went up with TV3's political correspondent, and he did the, it was the the year after Brash had had some mud thrown at him, he did the here we are and here's Brash and Helen Clark's not coming, and it was all that political manoeuvring stuff, and then cut to Mariana. Who does? Oh, and also the protesters are here. And that year—that was the year that Don Brash stood be, sat down between Tamaiti on one side of him and Brian Tamaki on the other. Wonderful photo, just a wonderful. Photo. I was there. I saw them. But um, Miriana does her piece, and she says she gives the history of Titi. She 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 points out that the treaty was more or less signed there at Titi because that's where people um, Rangatira met the night before and decided they would sign the treaty. She said, um, this is not a place for for protesters or for politicians. Anybody can come here. And she talked to a range of different people about why they were there and what Waitangi meant to them. 
was just cool. And then back to Stephen Parker to, to give us the right version again. Right, you know, kind of put Mariana in her place. I mean, I'm sure he didn't intentionally mean to do that, but she was sandwiched between these two orthodox versions of what Titi meant. And it seemed to me that there was the possibility there of a kind of a bicultural storytelling, that you had this very different voice coming through. Um, and I emailed her and talked to her about that. And she said that she had very little time. There was only one camera crew. She had to grab it when she could. She had no idea what Stephen Parker was talking about, was going to talk about. And she just did what she wanted. And it was because she had been working at TV3 as long as she had that she felt she had the authority just to go mm. ahead and do what she wanted. So Without when, being caught, caught on it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I got really excited by that. I thought here here we have two ways of looking at Waitangi, which was which was cool. The next year though, Mariana did the kind of how many protesters there are and how many arrests and then she was off. Yeah. Don't you think that the media sometimes generates negative storylines in regard to Māori? I think it's complicated. It used to be thought that, pe that that the media was like a kind of hypodermic needle, okay? And that you, it just plugged into your arm and you just took in everything it said. And people did studies on the effect on you of the media. And then people began to realise that audiences actually negotiated different meanings from the media depending on what knowledge they had and what they brought to it. So that, for example, people have done... Um, really interesting research about men and women watching Thelma and Louise, which is a film really strongly about gender. And the, and the findings were that it was like they'd watched two totally different films. <laughs> and um, African-Americans and Euro-Americans watching Do the Right Thing and the same thing. So people bring what they know and what they don't know to, to the media. Okay, and now those are both films. It seems to me with news that it is, and this is carefully calculated by the people who make the news, that it carries this air of authenticity. You know, it uses royal blue as a colour more often than any other colour because it has that air of authority. They all wear suits and, or the equivalent, even though they might just have shorts and jandals on under the desk. People think very carefully about where they're going to put the camera so that your newsreaders still appear friendly without being too intimate because you still don't want to break down their authority. So the news appears to be truer than other forms of media. And if you know something about what they're reporting, then you're able to say, well, actually, it wasn't quite like that. And for me, it's really exciting when students say, but look, I, I stood and watched the hikoi come through Wellington and then I saw the news coverage. And it was like two different things. But if you don't know, the news can be very persuasive. Hmm. And if you, if you acquire a whole world view just through your television screen, that makes it dangerous, doesn't it? I think it makes it dangerous. I think it makes it dangerous. Um, there's two points here. One is that I say to my students that if there's one, you can do a whole degree in media studies. If there's one thing I would want you to take away from it, it is that news is not a window on the world. It is a selected version of some of the things that have happened somewhere in the world. Um, and some people have been interviewed and other people have not been interviewed. And some points of view have been put and other points of view haven't been put. So it's a construction. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing... And let's go back to the wider issue of representation of Māori in the media. Is I feel really strongly that in order for us to have to be a bicultural nation in the true sense, and not the sense that it's flashed around that in society at the moment. You know, bicultural means having Māori names for buildings and Māori names on doors and things like that, and that's meant to be bicultural. I mean, if there is to be tino rangatira for Māori. Um, if Pākehā are to be happy with how this goes, if the government is to work for all this to happen, the Pākehā majority who have the voting power in the end have to know more about 
te ao Māori. They have to know more about New Zealand's colonial history. They have to know about what claims are based on. News traditionally doesn't give us any context. It just sounds like here they go stirring again. Oh, here they go. Here Māori go again um, soliciting their privilege. Yes. Yeah. So for that reason, I think news is really, really important because it has this bearing on the position of Māori within New Zealand society. Sue Abel discussing with Mariah her upbringing and the impact of that upon her career now as a media studies lecturer and how Māori are portrayed in the media. For more information, do go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. Now, I remember this group when I was five years old. Buster Warden was part of the Pātea Māori Club and he was there to totoko the group as they performed at the Komatoa Kapahaka held recently at Te Papa. was written by uh, Nepia Nikarima Ngarodu. And he wrote it for the club because the club, uh, over the years, had people like Napi Waka, uh, they had Araha Katu, our own family, who would write things. But, of course, they had very strong affinity with the... Uh, originally, the club was known as the Party of Māori Methodist Club. And then uh, later on it became the South Taranaki to be inclusive uh, Māori club. But, and then, of course, but now more, uh, I guess, nationally, internationally known as the Pātea Māori Club. And that's thanks to modern writers writing catchy tunes which everybody can relate to, and you would have, that was evident uh, today. Uh, I think the words in that virtually uh, convey was geared towards a well-known Ngāraudu haka, Moni, moni, and so on. And so, really, it was a message of understanding of, I guess, the social issues of the time in party. And we're really talking before the party of Friesian was closed, probably somewhere around about, or oh, taking take, it, I think it would be the mid 1980s, I think that it was written. And many of those the tunes which were written at that time, catchy. Uh, but they were, like all Māori poetry or sung poetry over there, it's about an issue. And you've been doing kabahaka for a very, very long time. (laughs) And I'm still enjoying it too as well. I think it's, um, it's, I guess, the the biggest thing for me is encouraging the ngā mea ngā ngā mea iti, kia aram urumai ki roto, kia maia mai rātou ngā mahi a kui maha koroma, he rāwe, he rāwe te rā nei, me ina nā ioki. And just today, I, um, your ropu were singing waiata that were reconnecting you back with Tainui. Aye. And also, Aye. the last waiata there was the reconnection back to Ngāti Parau with the relationship, the very, um, yeah, the relationship that you had with Noinoi Pufairangi. It's, it's uh, something we hold dear to. I think it was through Dal's involvement, um, and and he, between the both of them, they were able to establish something that keeps that connection very, very strong. And how involved are uh, Nā Rangatahi? Um, 
I, I suppose I would like to say they are very, very involved, but they aren't in the, at the moment. It's getting encouraging them to come back home. Kia tu, kita mahi e nei mai. And I guess um, kapahaka is really important too, Nera, in terms of um, ensuring your dialect stays alive. Tika. Kotera ete o ngā taonga te mauita mita, tā mātou nei mita, karongo mai ka kore roki mātou mō i o te ao, nō ea mātou, nā tā mātou nei mita. Buster Walden and Hui Kahu of the Pātia Māori Club. Do go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika, and there are some photos, and you'll recognise the queer from the video of Poye. Remember that video back in the Ra, Justine, where that fella was bopping and bopping? Yeah, I do, along the main street by that Pātia landmark, the waka. In white gloves, moonwalking. <laughs> Now, given that it was only Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori recently, it should be noted that more New Zealanders are embracing the nation's indigenous language. And while that's great to see and hear, there's still a long way to go, especially when you hear about what's up with the iwi of Whanganui, who are fighting for the letter H to be included in the name Whanganui. Although adding the letter H won't change the pronunciation of Whanganui because it is silent, Iwi believe that the proper name should be reinstated. So much so, they are planning to take that fight to the National Geographic Board after what was an unsuccessful referendum through the Whanganui District Council. Ken Mia, Te Atsihaunui a Pāparangi, has been involved from the outset. That's uh, our name, it uh, originates from our language. That's the name we've used for hundreds and hundreds of years as, as for our roi and uh, our iwi. So we, we believe that uh, uh, that it should be upheld and respected in the way that it has been historically uh, within ourselves. Uh, we've been fighting for the correct spelling of our name for a few decades now. And what's the problem? Why isn't the District Council doing it? Oh, well, I think at the end of the day, it's... Uh, the council has taken a very strong line, in particular the mayor, Michael Laws, in regard to uh, our name. He's uh, run a referendum, which we've said basically at the end of the day it was a nonsense, it was just a charade. Uh, but as well as that, uh, the information given in the referendum uh, uh, was incorrect in regard to the spelling of our name. And uh, you would have thought that out of respect that he would have come and spoken to us to at least ensure the information was right. Uh, however, um, the bottom line is that the referendum was a nonsense, and uh, he basically stated that uh, democracy democracy rules, and therefore we've got the numbers, and we're not going to change uh, change the name. We don't see any reason to change the name, uh, and that's the point of view that he's articulated on behalf of the of the uh, of the council. And yet, some um, other organisations have decided to implement the Whanganui with the H in there, isn't it? Mm. Oh, there, there's actually quite a few organisations. For example, uh, our river has, has the correct uh, spelling. Uh, the electorate, the political electorate, has the correct uh, spelling. Uh, the local <laughs> health board has the, cl- uh, the correct spelling. UCOLF, uh, the local tertiary organisation, mm-hmm. has the correct spelling. Um, Collegiate, the Board of Governors, which was uh, 1854, around that period, has the correct spelling. Um, so there's numerous organisations uh, that utilise uh, and, and spell our name correctly. So um, uh, whether people like it or not, uh, I think it will eventually change. But from our point of view, the ideal situation would be to ensure that uh, the, the, the name of the city is spelled correctly as well. Just yes, to make sorry. it clear, even though the H is going to be, or is in the name, it's still pronounced Whanganui, it's not Whanganui. No, that's, that's quite correct. It's, it's what we call, I suppose, uh, or the linguistics might call the glottal stop, eh? Uh, that um, uh, we don't say uh, Wanganui or uh, Whanganui, uh, it's uh, uh, Whanganui. 
So, you know, it's it's um, some people call it a silent uh, age. I don't uh, believe that it is silent. Uh, yeah. uh, those that, uh, when we speak, uh, our reo and that, mm. um, everybody knows that uh, where we're from, and uh, that's a particular meter of our reo, uh, of our language uh, that is unique uh, to us, certainly on the, uh, in regard to Onganui in the west coast here, Taranaki. The bottom line is really at the end of the day, is, is that uh, to give it meaning, and it has meaning with the H in it. Without the H in it, uh, it doesn't it doesn't come from anywhere. It has no meaning. Uh, certainly in the Māori language, and certainly uh, in the English language. So why would anyone want to have a name of oneself of a, of a city when it's got no meaning? When mm. in fact, uh, as the name derives from from us as as the local iwi uh, river people, it has meaning and historical meaning that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. So they won't put the H back in. Is this this a district council thing or is this Michael Laws? I think that uh, uh, clearly it is a district council thing, not just Michael Laws, because uh, his predecessor, uh, uh, Chaz Pointer, uh, um, and previous mayors uh, and councils have always held to the line that... uh, um, uh, we will spell uh, uh, the city name without the H, and uh, that will continue whilst they're in there. So it's not just unique to Michael. There is a little bit of history in regard to people, in particular the council and its leadership, denying uh, the rightful spelling of our name and showing respect in regard to the rightful spelling of our name. Mm. I mean, you say that this, is, this has been in the pipeline for decades. So, so what now for the iwi? Oh, well, at this stage, uh, we're uh, getting uh, some research done once again and pulling together all that research to do a uh, submission presentation to the New Zealand Geographic Board, which we hope to have it um, heard uh, early next year, and from there, uh, hopefully getting uh, their support for the name change. Tell me more about the New Zealand Geographic Board. What, what, what exactly is their role? Oh, basically, as I understand it, uh, uh, my limited knowledge in regard to the New Zealand Ge- Geographic Board, they they look at uh, all requests and submissions in regard to name changes, mm. whether it be river, uh, uh, street names, etc., etc. Uh, and um, they make a call, and as I understand it, they make a recommendation uh, to the to the government, and uh, the government implements it. Just another small thing, yep. Justine. You know, the, people say, "Well, um, uh, the spelling of the name is only, uh, you know, a recent issue in the context that it wasn't used historically, mm. you know, in, in writing and all of that." Which is quite incorrect. I mean, we've managed to get information that marriage certificates in the 90, early 1900s, 1890s, on some of those certificates, it had the H in it. You know, things like that. But of course, as you know, there's heaps of words in other languages that have silent letters. Mm. Um, you know, why, honest, you know, they all have, you know, so, and we all spell that right. So what's, <laughs> exactly. what's the difficulty in regard to a name that derives from our language? Kia ora tātou, ko ken me takuingwa, he mokupanuri o te awa o wanganui. Soon we'll be amazed by the feats performed by the world's best athletes at the Beijing Olympic Games. And while he has been asked to comment on the political situation within China, Māori cultural advisor Emster Reedy is very clear what his role within the Olympic team is. When you go to Beijing, um, will you be living with the other athletes? Yes, yeah, we're living that with work? the other athletes. We'll be living with them. Uh, we'll be uh, visiting them. Some will be because China is a huge place, there's mm. uh, Beijing, there's Qingdao and uh, other areas where, you know, the sailors, the equestrians and then the athletes are housed. And there's three and a half hour flights between each of those venues. So that shows you how vast, wow. how enormous the country China is and, uh, you know, the logistics of housing and, and, and keeping in contact with each of those is just is just gigantic. So um, the Māori way of covering that is that uh, you'll see on the fern on the is the hokioi the beak of the hokioi bird. And as I said earlier on, the hokioi comes out. And it used to be the harbinger of good or bad news if you haven't done your planting, if you've got your you know your act together, uh, then certain things will happen. So. It makes you shiver, 
you know, wiri wiri, you know, it's the word that for that, you know, kai te wiri wiri, te, te nuing o mato, no te meko te hoki oi, and we'll use that uh, mythical bird as a kind of a kaitiaki for us while we're over in China. Mm, awesome. You know, yeah, you're being looked after, and that hoki oi will, you know, uh, come out of the, the clouds and, you know, and um, warn you to get you, you know, to be be vigilant. So this is the kind of uh, dedication I'll make to the Hawkeye way, and then when we come back, it'll, you know, uh, we hope it will have done its job. Mm-hmm. Kia ora. Um, finally, Amster, when you are um, in Beijing eventually for the Olympics, what can we as Aotearoa do to support the athletes? That's a good question, you know. I wonder what it could do. Those are our children. We represent Aotearoa and we do our best. We've been in Aotearoa here is that, you know, we've, they do send, it's not as if they don't send them, but they send all these posters, you know, mm. and they're wonderful to get, you know, all that stuff from home in terms of great, you know, keokaha, get stuck in, um, all those signs of, of home, you know, the, some of these big long Māori post names on, you know, <laughs> Mahinapua, you know, they, they, all these long Māori village names where they come from, you know, stuff that represent Aotearoa, you know, that's what we like to say in terms of hearing from what comes back here. If it's, uh, you know, particularly the positive stuff, we'd like to feel that uh, anything negative can be, you know, can have its place, you know. If it has to be negative, well, you know, it has to be, but we'd like to be, uh, we'd like to feel that, uh, you know, that the public is behind us while we're there and, uh, you know, we'll do our best to represent the, the country, you know. Amster Reedy. And here he is again with this week's Whakatauki. Ahakohitia Mapi Pono. We're only a small country, but, you know, uh, it's about quality rather than quantity. We'd like to feel that everybody's behind us in terms of, you know, our athletes, athletes out there, the Amorangi Kimu, the Hapaioki Muri. I know they'll be behind, they'll be behind us. Kia ora, I'm still ready, no Nazi Pro, and good luck to the Olympic team. That's us for another week. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Mariah Rakraku. Kia ngā hua mahi, kia ora, no mai hoki mai anoe te iwi, hei a tera wiki. Mauri ora.